Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Billy Walker. And I'm Saskia Gojo. On the show this week, it's a bear, it's cocaine, it's a bear on cocaine. Karina trades in babies in Broker. And I got to speak to Clint Dyer about his groundbreaking production of Othello and the challenges and opportunities of transposing live performance into cinemas around the world. Little White Lies' Marina Asciotti will also be reporting from the Berlin Film Festival on its many highlights. And on film clubs, we're back to bears again with Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Very exciting. Two new guests on the podcast this week making their debuts. Billy, should we start with you? Who is it that you are and what is it that you do? So I'm Billy Walker. I'm a culture critic. My main focus is horror, but I also write book reviews for The Big Issue and dabble in other forts of arts journalism. I have um, an enduring love for body horror and a disdain for health exploitation. Well, I mean, this is kind of, I suppose, horror adjacent. So we kind of got you on for an area of your expertise. And Saskia, what about you? Who are you? Um, so I'm the freshest person at Little White Lies. So I've just started relatively recently as a marketing and, and editorial assistant. So I take what I can get and was bugging David about doing cocaine get there for ages. So happy well yeah and congrats to you for joining one of like the loveliest teams in all of media (laughs) yeah they're great I bet you're having a great time I mean I guess as you're both new people um I would love to hear whether you with your kind of specific taste is there anything this year so far that you've seen that you think's been a bit underappreciated but to you was a was a real gem I think I'm I just loved Megan I thought it was um just the right amount of camp and not everything was given away in the mad amount of hype it got on the internet. So I was like, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it does feel like some of these films, their kind of marketing does come down to how well it's going to be memed online. <laughs> the build yeah. up. And like Cocaine Bears, probably a pretty good example. Yeah, there was definitely still stuff left over in the film that wasn't already memed which was great to see well i'm also excited to see how they kind of do the titles for the next megan's i mean like are we going is there going to be a two where the g is are we going to have (laughs) m3 chugan are we (laughs) what what on earth are they going to do for megan three because it's like been such a hit like i imagine this is the start of a big franchise yeah they've sort of struck gold with that one haven't they uh and saskia what about you anything that people should be uh casting their eye back on and revisiting um, I think the the quiet girl that was that was sort of really really thoughtful and didn't quite get as much attention as I think it it should have done. So yeah, that that was one that seemed to get more attention from awards than it did from actual. Yeah, movies. from actual. Yeah, people didn't seem to be talking about it, but outlets did. So. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. After ingesting a duffel bag full of cocaine, a 500-pound American black bear goes on a killing rampage in a small Georgia town where locals and tourists must join forces to survive the attack. So, Billy, I mean, would you qualify this as a horror film? I mean, it certainly 
Cocaine Bear is an incredible title, but like, is it something that's also as horrifying as as the title suggests? I think um, it did really well at being pretty gory. Yeah, I definitely think it would qualify as a horror film just for the like wince factor. But I wouldn't. I don't know whether it had the suspense because I kind of you wanted to see him come up. Like the whole film is about like, oh, him, her, actually, the cocaine bear. So you want her to show up in the corner. You're not like, oh, please don't, please don't let it happen. Yeah, I really, um, it, it was it was definitely very grisly. I mean, like the title, I suppose, is supposed to be as funny as it is horrifying. But is it kind of for you more working as a comedy than an actually scary bear movie? <laughs> yes, I think it was definitely more effective as a comedy. You knew from the get-go that it was going to be grisly murders uh, with the bear, but also you were very excited to see the bear. So um, it definitely felt more like something like Sharknado or Zombiever than a, a scarier horror title of the year. I mean, we do sometimes talk about films that are so bad they're good. I mean, Saskia, was that the case for you? Was this Was this good? Was it bad or was it so bad it's good? Yeah, I think it's definitely it definitely falls into the so bad it's good category. It kind of surpassed good and like immediately entered the realm of great trash. So yeah, it, it did what it promised in that sense. I mean, Elizabeth Banks is not kind of, I mean, she's a fantastic actress, but she doesn't have the greatest reputation, shall we say, as a director. I think it's Charlie's Angels, the kind of failed reboot and uh, one of the pitch perfect sequels. I mean, did you think she actually did a decent job with this very strange bit of IP, Saskia? I actually was blessed in that I hadn't seen Pitch Perfect or Charlie's Angels, not the Elizabeth Banks version before. So I kind of went into it fresh and just, yeah, I think like even, even deter- like setting out to make a film called Cocaine Bear is, is kind of winning. Like even if you don't quite hit the mark, you're still like, it's a great attempt. So I sort of, I sort of respected that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that thing of snakes on a plane where it's just, um, you hear the title and it kind of has to be seen. Yeah, and also the, the, just the act of watching it is then funny, kind of looking at everybody else's re- reactions in the cinema. Um, so it, it's carved a, carved a good little niche for itself in that way. And Billy, when it came to like the bear itself, thankfully we now live in an age where we're not kind of baiting animal performers and torturing them to make them dance on screen. So this is a CGI bear. Were, were you kind of impressed by its design? I was very impressed. I um, I think it was one of those things where they've done it so well that you you want to you kind of want to cuddle it but you know it's definitely not not your friend i was surprised to learn that it was all cgi i suppose with one of these things it's it's like jaws that you want to like hold back a little bit and like not reveal the shark too soon so we're super excited to see the shark this film doesn't do that at all like there's a lot of bear i mean do you think there was maybe too much bear oh, no such thing yeah i don't think i don't think so i think also cuz the film was based on the true story and when I learned that the bear actually basically just died instantly it was quite nice to have a film that almost feels like a very bizarre homage to an apex predator and I think that sometimes with shark films I get disappointed at how much I see the shark because I'm a big fan of sharks so I'd always love to see the shark five times more so it was the right amount of bear for me. Yeah it does seem strange that like given how great sharks are that like we're basically maybe one and a half good shark films. <laughs> like I think like bears actually have got like a much better track record like do you have any like favorite bear movies i think one that springs to mind right now is paddington <laughs> which is so not the same thing <laughs> there's more coming out as well isn't there there's that winnie the pooh one. Oh yeah i don't know oh, how God, I feel blood, and, blood and honey i'm excited as well for i think they're going to do cocaine shark or elizabeth banks has potentially said something about it because there was um cocaine that was dropped in the ocean not long ago so uh it's another story inspiration so i would be very excited to see cocaine shark and if they show the shark as much as they show the bear that would be fantastic yeah, I guess, I guess you've got two choices with something like this. You can either kind of vary up the second noun or the first one noun. And in some ways, I think it'd be more interesting to like, let's do a lot more different drugs, but keep the bear. Like let's, we could do LSD bear, we could do meth bear, we could do stoned bear. <laughs> <laughs> Mushroom bear. It's in a forest. I do think the one thing they, they missed out on this was that the bear seemed 
on cocaine. But when the kids did like, they munched so much flake and then they just, they didn't seem like they were on cocaine that much. They could have been way more intoxicated. And I think they missed a few good punchlines out there. Yeah. I mean, if there is one thing cinema often gets wrong, it's kind of what drugs are like. Not that I'm kind of talking from personal experience. Of course, I'm an angel. But like often kind of when they try and make things like trippy or or people drunk or even kind of like the performances aren't that great. I mean, I mean, did you, Saskia, for you, like in terms of using cocaine as a <laughs> character device, I suppose, like how did that work for you? I, I loved the the sort of slow motion inhalation bits. Kind of when, whenever you see the bear like nuzzling the little bag, it kind of snorts it in slow motion, but it very slowly goes into its nose. I thought that was completely inaccurate, but quite quite entertaining. So yeah, it was it was all hyperbole, but it was, it was funny. Yeah, in a kind of world of horror comedies, there are so many that aren't funny or aren't scary. I mean, did did this strike a decent balance for you, Saskia? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, like like you were saying earlier, Billy, there was some good gore. You know, there was as many severed limbs as the as the trailer suggested that there was going to be. And you know, there was entrails. There was some decapitation. Like it, it covered all of that. And the sort of although it yeah, the bear was there all the time, so there was no like suspense. But there was kind of you know there were a few like shock kind of good shock things. So it kind of it answered to the horror part just enough to like fit it into the genre and then I think it was funny so Billy like we've got a really stacked cast here we've got Kerry Russell we've got O'Shea Jackson Jr Jesse Tyler Ferguson Isaiah Whitlock Jr who we all love from The Wire were there any like particular standouts to you for me the two standouts were definitely O'Shea Jackson Jr and Christian Condry the one that played the the little boy because they were just like they were the straight talkers that every time like no guys it's it's an apex predator and it's on drugs why are you trying to go after it? They were the only ones in the situation that seemed to like really have a grasp on it. And you always need, it's always good to have those straight talkers in a comedy horror because otherwise you have people like Jason Statham that think that they can fight the Meg and that just is unrealistic. So it's nice to have those people. And they and that kid did a really good job, I think. I, I do wish though that they'd had Matthew Reese in it more because he was only in that beginning clip. And I just, well, I just love him, so... I would have liked to have him around for a bit longer. <laughs> Reuniting the wonderful stars of the Americans. Like, yeah, Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell just, I believe they're married, but like, they also like have got <laughs> incredible chemistry. <laughs> that makes sense. God, and Saskia, I mean, amazingly, this was Ray Liotta, the legendary late Ray Liotta's last film. Do you think it's fitting that his last film was Cocaine Bear? I, I think it's 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 a great last film to have made. I mean, you've got it's it's <laughs> what an epitaph. I, I think I I would be happy if my last film was Cocaine Bear. Um, it it kind of there's no pressure then. <laughs> it's like yeah, that's a it's a fun legacy anyway. Yeah, and I guess it's nice that it kind of, it did seem like everybody on screen was having fun and taking it about as seriously as they should. So if you had a great time, that would be nice. Yeah. And like going back to Christian Convery, like imagine him later on in his life when he's a bit older being able to go, that was me. <laughs> that was me and cocaine there. Like, yeah. yeah. It's a much better legacy than the Harry Potter kids, isn't it? It's much more fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we should get some scores on this before we move on to a, sl- a slightly less ridiculous film. Saskia, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Okay, so in anticipation, I'm, I'm going to go with five because as soon as I heard the name, I was like, "This, you know, this has got to be, this has got to be great, even if it's terrible." And then enjoyment, I think four. I had a really good time. You know, I think it will, it will carry on being a, a, a kind of, it'll, it'll be a film that the people watch when they don't know what to watch. And I think that, although it's possibly not the, not like genuine quality, it's a good time. And in retrospect, also for like, it, it, it is what it is. Like, like you said, Billy, it does what it says on the tin. My dad's comment on this was, it's not to be sniffed at. So <laughs> put that on the poster. Oh, Billy, <laughs> what about you? So definitely five for anticipation, because when I first saw the trailer, I was like, this is going to be my personality for a long time. And I think it probably was actually a three. I don't think I got the high from it that I really wanted. There are some great jokes and 
the cocaine bear is definitely a cocaine bear, but I think they could have tweaked a few. I think there could have been some better jokes. And I think I would give it a four in retrospect because I know that I'm going to go and watch it with my friends and maybe be a little bit inebriated when I do so because I think it'll be a great film to watch with other people rather than just on my own. Yeah, you could make a great drinking game out of it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, every time the bear does cocaine, you, well, I mean, obviously listeners don't do cocaine, um, but (laughs) cocaine, you could take a a shot or, uh, although I think you might, you might end up blacking out if you did, if you did follow that maybe a half shot but yeah for me probably um three four three as much as like the trailer looked really fun and stuff I have been scarred by some of Elizabeth Banks previous directorial efforts but you know really fun but I think there was that thing a little bit like with the Meg which I think was trying to go so you know so bad it's good very consciously and I kind of wish that it was almost even wilder than it was Before we get on to Broker, I spoke to Clint Dyer, Deputy Artistic Director of the National Theatre, about his production of Othello and the bittersweet journey to turning it into a cinematic NT Live. Hello. Hi, Clint. How are you? I'm all right. I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Yourself? Yeah, no, good. Really lovely to meet you. So um, in the opening of this, you very much kind of position this production of Othello as being part of the legacy of the play. You see kind of images referencing other performances at the National. Uh, like, what was the intention behind that? Um, well, I suppose I wanted to speak into the way that other productions have been housed. I often feel that it's a strong example of where we sit as a society in terms of the take on the actual script. And so it was a way of making us also understand that and what I'm trying to do is hold dear the words of Shakespeare mm-hmm. and and not necessarily think that, oh, I'm setting it in a specific time and a place and be held by those constraints. I wanted us to, to see it as something that, well, what theatre does, which is a forum to, to allow us to, to think about the words in a different way as opposed to just the setting. But, you know, obviously this production is coming out, you know, this film of this production is coming out now and this was yeah. kind of end of 22, beginning of 2023 when it had its run. Mm. What do you think that was specific about, like, the lens of that time that changed this production? Right. Well, well, that lens of that time for, for me being finally able to make it, <laughs> I, I'd had the idea for over 20 years in terms of trying to really get under the skin of Othello as a character, as opposed to uh, the previous productions which seemed to rely too heavily on Iago's motivations as opposed to Othello's. I wanted to do a production that felt the intersectionality between misogyny and the lives that black men have to go through and so so really it wasn't about jealousy it was about power structure and the productions that i'd seen hadn't really owned that factor i mean part of that would obviously be because the people playing othello were white mm-hmm. and so you know had to kind of obfuscate the fact that they were blacking themselves up and it's so the idea of making it about race whilst blacking yourself up would have been really confusing because obviously they're trying to make you not look at race which as a black person was making me look at race even more but the ability to try and have a a more nuanced idea of the black experience inside it was what I was desperate to try and complete and like a lot of the white characters are kind of titled with being like part of the system do you feel like that's part of what the play is operating is that there is kind of a systemic racism to institutions like the national well, yeah, and the theater and you know generally the whole kind of british yeah. well yeah. yeah i wanted i wanted to have that conversation about theater have that conversation about britain have that conversation about how colonialism has left us in a situation where the idea of Desdemona marrying this black man was abhorrent and and it's so deeply steeped in the writing and that's what Shakespeare was trying to say. I think there's always been a confusion that to write racist dialogue means the play is racist but Mm -hmm. actually it's production that makes the dialogue make sense. And so if you house it in an environment where we understand that racism is systemic, we then understand 
how amazing a woman Desdemona is to go against her society and suddenly she becomes a heroine as opposed to this naive character, which is always how she's been portrayed, who has made a mistake and doesn't understand the levels by which she is operating. I wanted to try and make sense of a character like Amelia in that she must be a victim of something to help Iago mm-hmm. in the way that she does. Now, what's even funnier is usually in most of the productions, she ends up being considered the most likable character in it. When as a black man, I watch her and go, huh? <laughs> kind of incredible. How could she possibly be heralded as, as, as some kind of saviour? Unless the context makes her have a hurdle to get over herself. And so placing it in with this context enabled us to have sympathy for her, to understand why she gets hooked into the system and the beliefs of the system that actually are there to hold her down. So it's also a story of her emancipation. We made lots of efforts to try and make it feel modern and speak to the world we accept today. And with something like this, you've sort of, you know, this is like a kind of second win for the production. You already had the successful time on the stage. But am I right in thinking the last time you did a National Theatre Live with Death of England Delroy, it was filmed opening and closing night? In contrast, is that very difficult? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Very different indeed. So what happened was the the first production of Death of England, i.e. the first episode, that starred Rex Ball was the production that closed the theatre in that it was the last production that was on before uh, COVID came and swept all theatre away. And then we were production that opened the National in the next episode being about the other character, Delroy. And Charles Torreira was meant to play it, who, as you know, plays Othello. And he got appendicitis, but then incredibly lucky to have Michael Balligan take over two weeks before we opened. So I had to redo the whole show in the sense that we'd built it around Giles in in so many ways and the character that we'd built together. And so when I had to change it to, to Michael, I had to kind of try and go through the same methodology, which meant reframing and changing and then rehearsing him into the show in only two weeks, a one-man show opening in the Olivier. And then we came to learn that we were going to have to close on the 4th of November. And so, yeah, we opened and closed on the same day. Now, uh, the National being a national and us having the ability to do NC Lives, it, it was a real kickball scramble and unfair and mean to everybody involved in NC Live to request them to NC Live it with like two, three days notice. But we did it. And what we all decided to do was, because we were in such awful times, was to give away the production free online. So, yeah, I was really, really heartbroken that we closed. And still am. But it was a completely contradictory feeling, knowing that masses of new audiences were able to reach it online. That there's no way on earth we'd have reached that amount of people in the theatre than we did online. But then you know, it's been nothing but a success for me. We were then asked by Sky to make the third part, and we made the third part into a film, and then went on Sky, and we, you know, we got nominated for a BAFTA. Uh, so the history of it wouldn't have been thus had the theatre not closed, had the production not happened, I, I'm not sure that I'd have ended up having a film of it. But to turn Littleton into a studio and make it a, a, a fully-fledged film was an absolute thrill. The influence of film, I hope you saw in the productions, especially in terms of sound. Uh, it's much more, there's much more of a soundtrack than you find usually in plays. And, and just the, the third man-esque of it definitely something that I was trying to um, employ. 
Yeah. I mean, you can see it in the sharpness of, of, of the edits, definitely. But I mean, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because this was kind of presented as like that the play was specifically designed with knowledge of the cinema broadcast and with that in mind as a way that a lot of people would see it. Like, what did that mean from your perspective? Oh, just pure excitement. You know, it, it, it meant that one, I knew it could get to a wider audience. Two, there's just a different way in which we connect to work. So obviously on stage is an element by which the fourth wall being broken on stage means you have a, an immediate connection to the actors. So that when you then place it on film and get the opportunity to have close-ups, to get the opportunity to really delve into the intention of actors by the proximity of it, you're privy to a, a whole nother level of storytelling and sound allows you to place people right at the heart of how characters feel and right at the heart of what they're, they're experiencing. So to be able to have it all <laughs> in, the, in, in that way, I, I do feel like the cat with the cream have there been any things that you've seen in like previous National Theatre Live things where you're like, I really want to avoid that because that's kind of maybe too stagey and I want this to be like more cinematic? No, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about the way that it's shot is that it, it's so multi-camera. For those who haven't seen NT Live, I know that it's an experience where people go, oh, I didn't realise it was so involved. So usually, you know, you see theatre filmed it's one or two cameras it's pretty static you're almost sitting in the auditorium watching it but this all the shots have been worked out in a, in so much in advance they you know the, the the director comes into rehearsals uh we were he works out shot list there's about six cameras but it's all just done live and edited live it, you you get a a fluidity that you wouldn't necessarily usually get in film itself, or people are trying to recreate that feeling of a live edit. So it's spontaneous. There's an element of it being extremely fresh and you're able to be dynamic in mm -hmm. the shots that you use. Um, you said, mentioned that you've kind of wanted to do film for ages and uh, this is you know obviously a hybrid, but you've now made a film. I mean, is that something that you're going to return to? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always, I've got close many times. It's just that my films have always had a bad person at the centre of it. And during the 90s and 90s and stuff, it was very difficult to get anything made that felt black centric in any way. You know, I acted in, in some myself. So, so yeah. And, and now that it does feel as though we're, we're hitting a wave of, a deeper desire to have to have stories told by different members of the community. It feels like I may have a better chance finally <laughs> to make the kind of features that I want to make. Yeah, well, from your mouth to God is, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that it's something sustained and we're kind of not. There's a know. fashion. Yeah. Well, I I I I don't think so. Um, I think that kind of uh, you know you can't turn back the tides, but. You know, I've been disappointed in the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's still it's still it's still got to be quite noted that you know I, I'm sure if you looked at although we are kind of going yeah 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 the door, you know the doors kind of open. There's very still very few films that are on that are in the cinemas where it's directed by a black person, written by a black person, and acted by British black people. Yes, we're getting an American experience over here that we haven't quite seen. And there's quite a few things that we could definitely uh, look to on, say, Netflix and all that. But, you know, straight to cinema um, ones, it's, it's still still very, very rare. Wow. You know? So there's a way to go. There still is a way to go. To this um, well, thank yeah. you very much for the conversation. Let me see. Thank you so much for that. Bye. Thank you. Take care. The National Theatre's Othello is now screening at cinemas across the UK and Ireland and will open worldwide in April. Broker follows two brokers who sell orphaned infants, circumventing the bureaucracy of legal adoption to affluent couples who can't have children of their own.
After an infant's mother surprises the duo by returning to ensure her child finds a good home, the three embark on a journey to find the right couple. So Saskia, I mean, I had no idea what this film was about coming into it. And I was quite shocked that it was about selling babies. Did you come in with much knowledge of what this was going to be? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd read a little bit about the um, about the film prior to it, but didn't really know very much about the baby box system in Korea. I had seen Shoplifters, though, and really liked it. So I was curious to see the latest Hirokazu Koreeda film. And Broker kind of deals with quite similar themes to that. So I don't think I was shocked as such, although it is, yeah, when you when you put it like that, it's when you say it's about selling babies, that is quite a, yeah, that's quite a, quite an abrupt theme. Yeah, it, I mean, I kind of, as I started watching it, it kind of seemed like we were up for some sort of, I don't know, Little Miss Sunshine type of like sweet road trip. But it's also, I mean, like, it, tonally, it's interesting, I think, like, you know, the there's kind of a thriller element too, is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely interesting in the way, way it deals with morality or like ideas of morality because it's sort of every character is somewhere in a gray area you know like all the kind of good intentions are like layered with bad ones in this sort of weird like past the parcel of sort of human mishap it's like yeah nobody's blameless but also nobody is is um vilified billy i mean how did you find it kind of like dealing with all of these moral gray areas that it goes into i think it was quite a good look at i guess there's always a discussion and the most clearest example of this discussion that I remember is Juno, where it's adoption versus abortion. And I did appreciate that this one had a lot more nuance and it felt a, less, a lot less pro-life. It was just very clever about all the different... Everyone had a different reason and everyone's reasoning for feeling of their feelings about abortion and adoption were based on their, their upbringing. And it was quite, quite hard to watch at times. It was beautifully done, though. I mean, it's got some. It's got one of like the world's greatest actors. I mean, Song Kang Ho never misses, shall we say? Um, like, what do you think of him in this role? Yeah, he was um, really good. I really enjoyed the the way that they made him kind of gangster adjacent in his corrupt baby selling career, but also like beautiful sewer and a very delicate man. It was a really nice found family image. I think I was quite impressed how it how it was able to kind of be moving without being overly sentimental. I mean, Saskia, for you, did you kind of feel that it kind of nailed the, the these kind of very disparate issues that it's uh, dealing with while still not being overly cynical? Yeah, definitely. It, it treaded quite a, a nice fine line between the like really difficult things that it deals with and and never being too gooey. It, it you know it, it was kind of it was kind to its characters without being without giving them exactly what it what they wanted so i thought that was that was good i like the way that it showed it looked through the eyes of both of the brokers and the like law enforcement officers who were following them simultaneously so you kind of saw both sides and you saw like as their stories got closer because you're you're kind of you're kind of rooting for the brokers in some ways and then you're made to realize that they are selling babies <laughs> and and so it, it has that kind of interesting duality where you you know you're you're kind of you're supporting these characters and empathizing with them but also realizing that they're doing this you know wild thing yeah i mean it, it's one of those things where i'm not kind of highly aware of like the stance on um adoption in korea <laughs> like i i did feel like reasonably assured that the bureaucracy of it was so untenable in a way that kind of was making life quite unfair so it it, it does kind of position you as the viewer in in a kind of moral gray area i suppose but you know just on a technical level i mean like billy like he's a very highly respected filmmaker i mean what did you kind of think of him in terms of like you know the cinematography the way he shot things uh, what did you think of it in terms of a kind of technical filmmaking achievement for for the for the subject matter it dealt with it felt very picturesque actually and i think there was a lot of kind of moments of life in very small ways i think the the most pressing image i have is of uh, the one of the cops playing with a flower bud that's fallen on the on the car windshield and i thought that was a really beautiful moment of just of like the fragility of life and quite it was very beautiful to see this whole conversation about very difficult subjects and choices that uh well women and men have to make and everyone has to make throughout 
some very beautiful scenes and some very worn down areas. It was pretty well done. A lot of it is like shot in cars as well. So that like just technically that's quite that's quite an impressive thing to do to get the di- dynamic right and um, sort of make that feel that feel real. And then in terms, I mean, obviously Song Kang Ho, I mean, it's sort of almost pre-assumed that he's going to be amazing in this, but in terms of the rest of the cast, were there any other highlights for you? Baiduna was was good in it. She's the police officer, I guess, who's who's on the tail of the brokers. I thought she was quite good at kind of slowly warming up because at first she's very, very critical, especially of the mother. But then, like you were saying, Billy, the moment with the flower, she's kind of shown to to like soften in all these little moments, and she 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 plays that that very well, I think. Yeah, I also really liked Gang Dong Won. He was a good kind of almost romantic lead. There was some nice moments of chemistry, and. Yeah, I thought he was quite a interesting character, especially given his the the way he revealed his own background was quite quite moving. Well, we should get back to more angry bears shortly. So uh, let's get some scores on this one. Uh, Saskia, do you want to go first? In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. In anticipation, yeah, like I said, I'd I'd really enjoyed shoplifters, so I think I had quite high expectations going into this so probably a four and then enjoyment yeah also also four I think four fours all around for this for me I thought it was really lovely and difficult but but like very very thoughtful so and I'd, I'd quite like to see it again triple four Billy what about you what are your scores I think I agree uh, with Saskia on four for the anticipation it was definitely uh, shoplifters was a really good look at class so it was I was interested to see how this was dealt with and it definitely covered a lot of ground and a lot of perspectives again probably four in the yeah I might even do the same thing it's yeah probably triple four it's a it's a really well done film. Um, yeah, I think I'm probably similar. I mean, to me, this is like kind of a classic 3.5, which I know that I'm technically not supposed to do. But yeah, maybe four in anticipation and then, you know, 3.5s for the other ones. Certainly a, a handsomely made and well-performed film. But I guess it's that thing of like, once you've seen shoplifters, you know, it's not quite reaching those heights for me. So, that, I mean, that works against it. And now, Marina Asciotti joins us from Berlin to let us know some of the most exciting titles premiering at the festival. Hiya, this is just a very quick voice note from the Berlin Film Festival, where I've been the past few days. It's been super, super hectic just trying to catch up with as many films as I possibly can. And at at this point of the festival... It's hard for it not to all just kind of like mesh together. But I've just got out of a screening of a 1982 documentary called Heard It Through the Grapevine. It's a new uh, restoration. It's a film by Pat Harley and Dick Fontaine. And it follows James Baldwin visiting activists from the civil rights movement 20 years after that had peaked and kind of exploring what's changed from the 1960s all the way through to the 1980s and just kind of shows that, you know, the 1980s are not that far away from the present day. Um, It was a really, really essential watch. Another restored film that I watched the other day that's really stayed with me, it's a 1974 Brazilian film called The Devil Queen, which was, it's been one of the highlights of my festival so far in terms of catching up with not new films. So The Devil Queen, it's this high camp queer gangster movie made in the 70s. You should definitely seek it out if it's available to you. It was followed by a Q&A with the director and he himself described it as Tarantino and Almodovar before they were making movies, which I thought was really funny, but also really, really great. And he said that the, the idea for the film came to him when he began to ask himself, where is the blood behind all of the pot that we're smoking? Uh, in terms of competition titles, again, I've been trying to watch as much as I can. Christian Petzold's A Fire, 
is really, really great and not what you'd expect from Petzold. Angela Shanalek's music is also a very, very challenging film, but also one that kind of been trying to wrap my head around more and more. And it's been kind of shifting more into perspective. Those have been my personal favorites, along with Totem. It's a Mexican film by Lila Aviles, which kind of resembles last year's Golden Bear winner, Carla Simon's uh, Alcaraz. And yeah, those have been my thoughts on the festival so far. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss next up it's film club Werner Herzog's documentary Grizzly Man examines the calling that drove Timothy Treadwell to live amongst a tribe of wild bears on the Alaskan Reserve. When one of the bears he loved and protected tragically turns on him, Herzog looks to the footage he found as a window into understanding nature and its grim realities. So Billy, this is this was one of my suggestions, one of my favourite ever documentaries. Is this your first time coming to Grizzly Man? This is my first time coming to Grizzly Man and actually, maybe embarrassing to admit this, but in first time coming to Herzog. Wow. Uh, you've got some beautifully grim films ahead of <laughs> you. I mean, what, what did you make of the documentary? I thought it was really impressive. I think I love Werner's little directorial uh, intercepts of of being like actually I completely disagree with this outlook on things and it was a very interesting portrayal of someone who's very complex it was a very different film to watch after seeing Cocaine Bear as well because it's um it, it it had a lot more reverence about what bears are capable of without showing what bears are capable of yeah I mean the 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 kind of viewpoint of these bears is so interesting because you can kind of see Herzog's lens versus how Timothy Treadwell views them. And like, you know, I, I believe at one point he even, he kind of articulates that he can't understand what Timothy is seeing. And he kind of sees like the cold black eyes of a killer rather than some kind of sweet soul. But you Saskia, what was, was that interesting to you? Kind of those contrasting views of nature? Yeah, definitely. Especially the the bit that you're talking about where he kind of talks, I think he talks about it as like the cold indifference of nature versus Timothy Treadwell's just love of these creatures and belief that kind of belief that they love him as well in a sort of, you know, anthropomorphized way, kind of, you know, he sort of does, he does kind of project stuff onto these bears. And yeah, seeing, seeing Herzog's complete sort of, you know, dismissal of that is interesting. He's got a very sort of nature red in tooth and claw view on it, which yeah, is 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 more aligned with you know, he 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 goes to the museum, speaks to a curator of a of a, a museum with indigenous artifacts and talks to the curator and, and he also kind of shares Herzog's views that 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 yeah, Treadwell's Treadwell's sort of humanizing of these creatures is a kind of disrespect. Yeah. I mean he's he's definitely a complicated man. And like Billy over the course of the documentary he actually he's kind of delusional and quite dishonest in some of the ways that he kind of talks not about himself, but what it is that he's actually doing. I mean, did you find him a compelling figure, even though he is at times not great? I was, I think I was interested at the beginning because I do understand that some people feel such 
I mean, it might not seem like respect from some people's point of views, but he obviously felt like he had respect for the Bears. And um, I can understand how you could convince yourself that actually you've got a special experience and that because they haven't killed you yet, that means that you're probably in good company. But I think what Werner did really well was was demonstrate by not cutting Treadmill's footage just how unwell he was. And the more you get into the documentary, the more you really see some very vicious behaviour and some odd remarks about women and homosexuality. It's There's some bizarre things that he brings into a supposed documentary about nature and and bears so yeah it's it was a very interesting character i don't know whether the the friends and family would have been that happy with how the documentary turned out but maybe they would have seen the the duality and been appreciative of it yeah i mean the one of the kind of most moving parts of the film for me which is in some ways it's least cinematic is where one of the friends and family has got the audio of the attack that killed not just Treadwell, but his his girlfriend. And it's simply just Werner Herzog listening to it and then explaining to the woman that she must never listen to this because he's so shaken and telling her that she must kind of destroy this tape. I mean, like, that stayed with me so much. After, even though I've kind of watched this film about five times, like, it, it always gets me. Like, Saskia, was that a highlight for you too? Yeah, definitely. That was a really kind of powerful moment. I think he says to he says to her that otherwise it'll be the white elephant in your room. It, it'll haunt you, and 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 you'll never be able to kind of move move past it. Then I thought that was really um really haunting, and the fact that the fact that you don't hear it watching the film, you only see Herzog's reaction, and he's he's crying. So yeah, that combined with how he he talks to the the guy who did the post mortem. So you have the image painted by the person who had dealt with the bodies and then Herzog's reaction to the audio. So it's this sort of, yeah, your, your impression is made up of, of, of kind of those two things, which I think is, is like more awful because you're imagining it. In terms of Herzog, I mean, he's got such a kind of distinctive voice as well. And he's got, it's kind of, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's grim. It's slightly monotone. He's got this incredible German accent. I mean, what did you make of his narration? Yeah, he's he's got Herzog's got amazing kind of gravity, like the way he speaks, and also just the the, the things he says as well are um, just they echo, you know, they kind of resound. So he's 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 a great narrator in that sense. I think my favourite line of his is, "I believe the common denominator of the universe, not harmony, but chaos, hostility, and murder." I mean, obviously he's got a very specific outlook, but um, that, like you said, red red and tooth and claw. That's how I was brought up to deal with nature and and kind of appreciate it from a respectable distance and I think everyone other than treadmill gets that. I mean that is very much when you now do your big Herzog watch uh Aguero Wrath of God, that's these are themes that are gonna come up a few times about like the chaos and the misery of existence and the world around you. I might try and do it quite slowly. I'm not gonna do it all at once. It's not a binge. No, for, for your sense of self in the universe in order to not have an existential crisis, no more than one a week. Is there anything else that you think we should mention about Grizzly Man before we move on, Billy? It feels very, it does feel very similar to some of the ways you see people on TikTok now. I think there's a lot of people that use animals for clout and treat, I mean, even like there's lots of footage around there of like raccoons and, and wild foxes being domesticized. And I think we need to be respectful of these animals because yeah they are wild and they share the same half-bored interest in their food that Herzog points out and we get we get too familiar and I think there's a definite human hubris of what we think our relationship with animals is and it's yeah it's quite dangerous (laughs) yeah that's very interesting like the the idea of his kind of reverence being ultimately disrespectful and serving his own ego. I think it would probably not be too strong an accusation to level at him. Uh, what about you, Saskia? Any last thoughts on Grizzly Man? Yeah, definitely. That kind of self-mythologizing as well is, is something that it, that it looks at in 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 quite a quite an interesting way. What I thought was what I thought was quite cool was the way that Herzog thinks about about Treadwell as a as a filmmaker as well. He's not only looking at him as this like loony. He, he's 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 looking at him as like as someone who kind of was quite meticulous in the way that he documented things 
So that was another another interesting part for me. Well, we should move on to something not movie related for once. Billy, you're going to kick us off with our new way of ending the podcast, where you recommend for our listeners, and I suppose to me as well, a non-movie. What is your choice? Um, so I've been reading Dead Girls by Alice Bolin. It's um, kind of a memoir and collection of essays about America's obsession with dead women. Um, but I think there's also, I wouldn't say it's just America's because it's a lot about it looks at our true crime fascination, our fascination with shows like Twin Peaks. And and even actually, I think it's relevant to the obsession with you right now and how we use dead women as a, a narrative rather than a being in themselves. And it goes on to talking about how we deal with alive women. So it's, it's, um, it's a hard read, but it's also, I think it's really important. God, that sounds fascinating. I mean, I, I personally one day want to read a in-depth psychological study on what true crime has done to the brains of women. <laughs> and, you know, obviously film is so famous that they like that dead women are just used as plot devices. What do they call it? Fridging, I think it's called. Yeah, or you just have a dead lady in a fridge. But it's OK, because this is now giving the male character a wonderful new motive. Yeah, and it's like a, ca- a catalyst as well. It's like it's something that sets the plot off and you just kind of move on. Yeah, And then they also always like the detectives always sexualize the, the dead woman and fantasize about her in ways that are just it's a very bizarre trope that we've gotten really, really comfortable with. Maybe Herzog is right. Maybe we should just kind of <laughs> burn it all down. <laughs> Chaos, um, let it rain. It's <laughs> uh, asking, what about you? What's your non-movie recommendation? Okay, I've got I've got more of a more of a sort of glib one. Apologies if like everybody already knows about this because I kind of live under a rock. But I want to recommend the Public Domain Review website, which is just a, a collection of kind of illustrations and articles of curious, eclectic things from the public domain, and it, it always makes my day. There's a there's a really good really good article about the pre-Raphaelite obsession with wombats and things like that. It's got kind of Victorian drawings of cacti, just just anything that you could want. Yeah, just just lovely, curious stuff. That's that sounds like that's going to take up about six hours of my day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what? It's just things that are in the public domain because like the copyright has run out. Yeah. So it's it's an uh, it, it, it's a kind of uh, run by a load of archivists who will kind of revisit old books and scan all the illustrations so that you can look at them and so you can look through kind of whole whole books on it and then there are there are lots of kind of articles on just ephemeral subjects. So yeah, it's great for great for going down a rabbit hole. Thank you so much. I had not heard of that, and I'm very glad I now have. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email Truth and Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Michael B. Jordan makes his directorial debut to battle Jonathan Majors in Creed 3. Lucas Don takes a devastating look at coming of age in close. And Little White Lies editor David Jenkins spoke to the director. And for Film Club, it's another Black Movie Stars directorial debut. We'll be celebrating the re-release of Sidney Poitier's Buck and the Preacher. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies was hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Billy Walker and Saskia Gaja. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.